0: Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations.
1: Come down, moving too fast.
0: Support for this podcast and the following messages come from our friends at the Paul Mueller Company and Hopsteiner. Please thank them. This podcast wouldn't be possible without their generous support.
1: Paul Mueller Company has been manufacturing quality brewing equipment since 1964. Our innovative design and engineering will save you time, labor, and ingredients, sending money back to your bottom line. Learn more about our new mobile hop module at paulmueller.com. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. The reason that the protein is higher in the United States is because it's associated with yield. And as long as we allow farmers a higher protein spec, they're going to fertilize as, they, as much as they can to increase yield.
0: Last week on the show, Joe Hertrick explained why North American two row barley evolved to take on six row traits. This week, you'll hear about why that's bad for all malt beers
1: and what you can do about it. Okay. Now this, this section is really about all malt brewing. Adjunct brewers have the malt they want. Just think of adjunct brewers require a high expression or overexpression of malt attributes because they're going to dilute then with 35 or 40% adjunct. All malt, ma- all malt brewers, though, have to manage barley and malt that it doesn't overexpress attributes because the needs of all malt Uh, brewing will not require dilution with adjuncts and that's where and that's where this issue pivots on that uh, all malt brewers in the united states now get two row that has um, attributes that are suitable for adjuncts so we're going to, we talked about in the previous podcast the drivers of change, modification balance and total protein. Those don't directly interact with the brewing process, but now we need to talk about the outcome artifacts that come from them, enzyme and free amino nitrogen, because they are direct impacts in the, um, in the brewing process. The first thing I want to do is let's really summarize just how big the gap is between the traditional concept of two-row in the rest of the world and this North American two-row that I've been talking about. Because the two-row that I talked about in the United States prior to breeding, uh, primarily uh, Hanschen and Betzes, that barley and that malt looked just like the current malts that come from Europe today, because while we've been going through our 50 years or so of evolution, the rest of the world has not changed their thinking whatsoever. And a good frame of reference for this is Wolfgang Kunze's technology book. Because in this book, he, he details the averages of all the malt, and this is Turo row of course, that's been measured at the VLB in Berlin, and he sets out. A set of recommended specifications for a malt purchasing contract. So, of course, Wolfgang Kunze and his book is German. I look at it as the standard for all malt, Reinheitsgebot-type brewing. And, and I look at it as the standard of just, when, when we think about these high amounts of enzyme and fan in the United States, we tend to forget just how much or how little in this case is really required to carry an all-malt Process. So I'm going to go through some numbers here that that touch on three areas: total protein, diastatic power, and, and fan. And again, my the point I want to make here is just how different we have become in total protein. The AMBA guidelines for adjunct two rows said that it needs to be below 13 percent. In the 2014 edition of an all-malt for two-row guideline, the AMBA guidelines to breeders are that the barley should just be under 12%. Well, in Kunze's book, when he describes the optimal um, German malting barley, it has a range of 9 to 11% protein. That's a, big, that's a lot less. And... In my 20 years or so experience following European varieties, they observe this and they state this in agricultural practice. I've only I can only think of one case, maybe two, where in an extreme situation the maltsters in Europe had to use barley between 11 and 11.5. Very very rarely is the is the barley ever, used in malting ever over 11 percent. And Kunzi supports this with he, on his averages of German malt shipments, um, is 10.4%. Now, uh, because there's a little transformation during malting, so all that malt was made from barley that was 10.6%. So there's no question that we're way off here with uh, total protein that we allow in agriculture. Uh, if I look to the UK, um, the average pale ale malt shipment out of the UK indicates that it was made with barley between 9 and 10.5. And in the UK, they look at um, a little bit lower protein for pale ale malt. The UK lager shipments, it all looks like it was made from malt that's between 10 and 11.5. So we've we've evolved to a very different profile in the United States. And I, I would point out that, that barley protein is essentially an agricultural practice outcome.
0: So it's not so much variety dependent. It's
1: really just at the grower level differences. It it is, John. At the margin, I know there's a lot of discussion among breeders that, and, and this is true in all crops, by the way, they're always looking for more efficient ways for crops, any crop to utilize soil nitrogen and convert it into plant protein, and it's true at the margin, there's some uh, differences between the um, uh, between varieties and how they take up nitrogen and convert it to grain protein. But that's a small part of it. The large part of it is agricultural practice. I've seen barley in the United States from different agricultural practices and different seasonal years. I've seen barley in the United States average between. I've seen it as low as eight. And I've seen, I've seen it as high as 16. And these are all the same U.S. varieties. And it depends on the agricultural practices for, for nitrogen application. And it also depends on the, the climate and the growing season. Um, one of the things about barley and nitrogen is farmers generally apply all the nitrogen for barley just before or at planting. So that amount of nitrogen is set. Then the barley protein varies during the year by how much natural rainfall. When we get um, more rainfall and we get a bigger fill, plumper uh, kernels, there'll be less protein. Um, we've seen uh, higher, uh, higher um, heat years with less rainfall where the barley will be thinner and have higher protein. In 1988 was the last time we had a really big drought in the Midwest, and all of us had to brew with 15 and 16% protein barley because that was the outcome that year. Uh, This is one of the places where in the United States you can really equal this out with irrigation because the farmer using irrigation can fertilize, and then he can take uh, rainfall out of the equation. But my two points would be that, that barley is primarily an agricultural practice outcome. And that you can't expect lower fan and lower soluble and lower enzymes later on. If we keep malting high-protein barley, uh, we have to reduce that incoming warehouse of protein that's going to be um, reduced. Um, So, you know, this can be managed, though, with contracting because— Unless, we do more now. All the barley is contracted. Very little is, is grown without a contract. Uh, so the contract specifications can specify uh, what the protein should be. You can tell your maltster what you want. Uh, I know, I know of, of brewers that have arrangements with their maltsters that the barley, is for their account, is not to exceed 11. What you have to expect, though, is a multi-year commitment for this because right now 2018 barley is being planted and that will become 2019 malt that protein except for the rainfall that's coming has already been set that's already been fertilized for that protein profile so we all, so a brewer has already missed the window for impacting the protein in his 2019 malt um the, uh, so, But it can be done, uh, but it has to be done in a multi-year, longer relationship. It can't just be shopping uh, year to year because the barley is being grown and the, and the, and the monster is contracting on a longer window. Uh, the other thing you should expect is a surcharge um, for yield loss and segregation the reason that the protein is higher in the united states is because it's associated with yield and as long as we allow farmers a higher protein spec they're going to fertilize as they as much as they can to increase yield to get up to the minimum grain number or the maximum grain number so there is a strong association with yield so it it would not be unreasonable to expect that a maltster would say to you, I, I understand your barley needs, I understand your protein needs, I will get you that, but I'm going to have to pay the farmer a premium and a surcharge for his yield loss. And then since nobody else is asking for this, I'm going to ask you to pay me a, a small surcharge for segregation, because nobody else wants this, I'm going to be holding this separate for you all the way through the process. Now." there's some there's some amount of money that is justified and that has to be done in negotiation between the the maltster and the brewer but you know maltster brewers are not they they may not realize it but they're not um against paying for additional surcharges Maris Otter, as an example um we all re- we all know that Maris Otter malt when you bring it to the united states is more expensive well when I talked to my colleagues in Great Britain, I asked them, uh, when I was preparing for this, I said, well, what is the what is the situation with Marisotter in terms of a surcharge? Because the bar, the barley itself, it's revered by maltsters and brewers, but it's delisted, it's been surpassed in agronomics, um, it's not that easy to malt, and I asked them, well, how do you get that he says well we pay a surcharge i said what is the surcharge for maris otter in the uk he said 100 mm. so so it starts out if, if if the world market for barley is 250 a ton it starts out you can have all the maris otter you want by offering contracts for 500 a ton so you can look at that directly through to the malt price because you know the barley the Barley cost is probably two-thirds of the malt value, so it doesn't, va- it doesn't double the cost of malt, but it makes a pretty good increase in the cost of malt. And I'm, I'm, I assume as a, as a brewer, you've experienced some of this uh, cost difference yeah, when, you, when you yeah. look at Maris Otter. But, so what I'm saying is I don't think there's a justification in the United States for, um, for anywhere near that surcharge. You know, I don't think I, I think you could find some more reasonable surcharge in the ten, fifteen, twenty percent range, which would be minor compared to what it takes to get Maris Otter. This goes to the this goes to the issue, though, uh, of my feelings on a lot of things that um, should be improved in the Molster and Brewer relationship. Molsters shouldn't tell brewers what they can't have; they should tell them what are the implications of having it. In other words, when when Harrington was being phased out, Molsters. Shouldn't tell a, a brewer you can't have Harrington. Nobody grows it anymore. What he should tell him is, I can get Harrington grow because it's less disease resistant. I'm going to pay a premium to the farmer. Then I'm going to segregate it, and here's the cost implication of me doing that for you. And because it's the relationship with the farmer is longer term, I'd I'd like you to be able to stick with this for five years. And again, it's the concept of don't tell people they can't have something. Tell them exactly what are the implications of having it. That's what monsters should be better at. Sorry to get on my soapbox there. No, that, that makes <laughs> sense. Do you
0: also think, I mean, going back to the, if you if you use those German um, traditional uh, ranges for yeah. all malt brewing, I mean, do you think that's, and this seems like common sense to me, but isn't that what the, the all malt voice at AMBA should be demanding
1: as well? I, I, I hope so. But the first set of guidelines are a step in the right direction, but but not all the way there. And I would also say that these German guidelines are more suited for lager brewing. And it may be that the transition from ale brewing to a higher amount of lager will stimulate this going a little further among the craft brewers. But I think the reality is, John, I don't think there's very many... I don't think there's very. I don't think there's any craft brewers that brewed with the malts before the breeding of clogus. There's a handful of brewers, craft brewers that remember clogus. Tremendous amount of. I remember bre- seeing it on Sierra Nevada's label years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was one of their favorites. Then there's a significant number of brewers that based on that were based on Harrington, and the, the way craft beer grows so fast, I would guess the predominant. Uh, Malt knowledge of craft brewers today is Metcalf, and now there's an emerging knowledge of Copeland and the difference between it. So there's got to be a number of brewers that say, you know, oh, boy, this this thing he's Joe Hertrick's talking about is, you know, it's interesting academically, but I got a really successful product. I built my brewery. I built my process. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with this malt. Because this is what I've, everything has been based on, and you know are you're going to go after after creating a successful business on Metcalf, are you going to go to the owner and say to satisfy the academic explanation of what two row actually is, I'm going to change all our malt. <laughs> I, I don't think that's going to happen so much. So that's a but but the point that I want to make is that that the protein level can be managed. Through contracting and interaction with your maltster, that it's completely justifiable for them to expect a surcharge for lower protein and segregation, and um, that we're never really going to start reducing the artifacts that come from high modification without reducing the input uh, from um, from the total protein. So let's move on to. Um, diastatic power and take a deeper dive into diastatic power and uh, we all understand that attenuation in brewing is determined in the mash mixer it's you know the one of the one of the basic physical truths of brewing without some crazy exceptions is that once you make things fermentable in the mash you can't stop yeast from fermenting them and if you don't make them fermentable in the mash you can't make the yeast ferment them now there's some crazy examples of people interrupting fermentations and things like that but that's a general physical truth. So you have to be able to handle the attenuation impact of your final beer and your final alcohol in the mash and the mashing vessel. So it's time temperature time dependent, temperature dependent, we know that, but it's enzyme level dependent too. How much enzyme do you put into the process before you run your time and temperature profile? So the issue here for all malt brewing is we are far in excess of DP needed for an all malt process. And we can't take that we can't take that DP that's in, say, Metcalf, put it into a mashing process. We really don't have any control time and temperature because we can't get that level of enzyme in and out of the activity range fast enough. Now, just to show you how different we are, and and I've standardized all these numbers to ASBC um, degrees Lintner because it's very difficult to manage um, these numbers because Germans report in Windisch-Kolbach units and English report in IOB um, Lintner units. They're all different. So if... uh, for anybody that's listening, I would I would tell you that if you wanted to take a Windisch Kolbach and convert it to ASBC, you would take the Windisch Kolbach number plus sixteen, divide that by three point five, and that gives you the ASBC degrees Lintner number. If you want to convert IOB numbers, you take the IOB numbers, Lintner, multiply it by one point one, and that gives you the ASB. C degree Lintner. So I'm going to talk only, I've converted them all, and I'm going to talk only in Lintner. Now, the U.S. Metcalf shipments today probably average around 160 units DP. In Kunze's technology book, he would say that the German shipment range of all the malts he sees shipped, and he measures them at VLB, is 73 to 79 degrees lintner almost half of that amount and he and he recommends if you're creating a specification for malt the minimum amount should be 62 degrees lintner and what that's saying to me is in an all malt situation that's all of the dp that you need to carry an all malt process the, to convert the starch that's in the malt now when you start and it's still considered a um, a base malt. If you look at a typical German Vienna malt, that ships at around 66 degrees Lintner, a little lower than their Pils malt because it has a more of a kiln profile. Now, the, VD, the, the UK is even more aggressive. Um, the, the pale ale malt shipped out of the UK because of the stronger uh, profile of kilning is typically only about 45 degrees lintner and a lager because shipped out of the uk is around 60 now talking to to uh, people that ship that uk pale malt at 45 they say that even at that you could put some crystal malt with no dp in it and it'll support um, an, a mashing process so this is this is just an example of how far away we are, because th- that Metcalf at 160 is intended to go into an adjunct process, and you can run adjunct processes in the United States as high as um, 55% malt. So you could take that 160 and you can uh, dilute it um, with all that adjunct. And what does it bring you to? It, it brings you to in the '80s, which is more than enough um, to support the process. And I would tell you the pre row my original records from Betzes, uh, when it was shipped in the United States, was ninety. So our, that 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 specification that gives you a really good a really good triangulation of how much do you really need for um, an all-malt brewing process. And so you shouldn't get panicked. The brewers shouldn't get panicked if they have more kilning done and and their DP is at 120. Uh, They shouldn't be concerned at all. For all-malt processes, um, we can can support a much lower um, DP level. And Joe,
0: there's probably some brewers listening that say, hey, so what, I have more than I need. What's the big deal? Why don't you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, the that's what the big deal is, that you absolutely have no control of attenuation uh, in an RDF at mashing. It eliminates the brewer's control of it. And I'm not sure maybe even brewers realize this. Um, but for instance… Um, Michael Lewis, Dr. Michael Lewis, he wrote, uh, he wrote a 2003 Master Brewers paper talking about this malt and craft brewers. And actually, the beauty and the beast of malt was in the title. After he explains it, he makes the statement, all malt mash with American malt should be hot and short. Coming up. If you really study... The, the the profile of the most classic loggers Bavarian Hellas and Czech pills they are not uh, above 62. I'm John Bryce and you're listening to the Master
0: Brewers podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Milwaukee meets May 17th at Central Waters Brewing. District Northwest meets in beautiful Hood River the weekend of May 18th. District Rocky Mountain holds its technical summit in Fort Collins May 19th. District New York meets at Anheuser-Busch in Newark June 14th. District Philly's annual golf meeting is June 15th. Registration is now open for the ASBC MBAA Brewing Summit, which takes place in San Diego this August. Register at mbaa.com, where you can also view the full calendar of events with more details or find a district meeting near you. Now back to
1: the show. All malt mash with American malt should be hot and short. Now, that's where I think all the all malt brewers are, um, that um, that they mash in at higher temperatures. If you think of the activity range between beta and alpha of something like 144 to uh, the really high activity range, maybe to 156, uh, all, malt, um, all malt brewers a lot of times are single mashing starting in the mid-150s. Because they got to get in and out of that attenuation range, and they typically still end up with a beer that's sixty eight percent attenuated. You know, even if you took malt and you ran the most exper- you could sit there and you could mash it for four hours, you really can't get the um, attenuate, you really can't get the RDF of the beer that it makes up over about seventy two or seventy three. That's all the power that there is in that malt, and all malt brewers are just out there at the edge because they really don't have any control over that, um, and they may not even realize that. Um, but let me give you an example because I started brewing in 1965, and I have first person experience as a brewmaster with the, the transition from Betts's to Claugus. At the time, uh, I was a brewmaster for Pabst. And uh, we were making, uh, among our other products, among Papsule Ribbon, we made a uh, all-malt on-decker. Um, and it was um, all-malt, classic European style. And uh, because it was a European Helles, um, Bavarian-type Helles, it was intended to be between 60 and 62 degree attenuation. And um, it was... Um, uh, never over sixty-two. So we're brewing this with Betzes, and we have our profile for it. We mash in at a lower temperature. We steam through. We didn't need much in the way of conversion. But remember, the Betzes was ninety DP. Um, maybe it was um, you know five minutes at one hundred and fifty-three, something like that, and then steamed off to mash off. And we would get our final attenuation would be around sixty-two degree. Um, percent real attenuation well one day and you know without me understanding all the subtleties of it because it was it i didn't purchase the malt i was a i was a brewmaster in the plant and the five plant system Uh, we um we changed from that's just the clogus now this is in retrospect i learned that the clogus was 130 dp so we make our we make same profile, same beer. The only thing that's changed is Betzis, or uh, Clogus is coming out of the bin now. So we go ahead and finish the brews. We follow our, follow our procedures. And we get the results back when the beer reaches lagering. And it's 68% degree of attenuation. And so... I mean, I do the first thing that brewers do. You, you, you get your people together and say, let's go over this. Was this made exactly by the procedure? You calibrate temperatures. You check cycles in the programmers. You do all that. And I say, okay, uh, we don't know. We don't have an explanation, but let's make it again and stand there and watch every step that the that the programmed mashing goes exactly that way and the um, um, and the temperature... Uh, sensors have all been calibrated. Let's do it again, and we're going to be there for every minute of it. We do it again, and uh, we get exactly the same result. Watching exact the same the right process outcomes, we got sixty-eight percent attenuation. So we don't have any beer. We don't have any, anything that fits the profile. So my uh, my superior, my mentor at that time was Carl Strauss. So I talked to him about it, and he was very. He was very in tune with raw materials. I, I credit him with teaching me most of the things that I know about raw materials um, and getting me started down that path. But we talked about it. He said, well, let me look into this one. And he calls me back in a couple of days, and we talk about enzymes. And we talk about DP. And he's telling me we have to control the enzymes. We have to find a way in mashing to control the enzymes uh, to make this beer. And the first thing we did is because... We were an adjunct brewer, we had a cereal cooker, so the first thing we did was boil some of the malt in the cereal cooker and then infuse it into the main mash. It was essentially a faux decoction, but we didn't start in one vessel and pump it out and then pump it back. So what that, that worked because we killed some of the enzyme in the, in the cooker process and then we, we gave it a hot shot into the main mash, which jumped us faster out of the enzyme process. Uh, range so that worked but we really didn't like the beer with boiling the malt that way so we said okay well then what we'll do is we'll use the cereal cooker to boil water and when we get toward the activity range we'll make a boiling water infusion to speed up the jump out of the the activity range and that worked Uh, and we eventually then Decided that we didn't want to have the cooker involved, so we put in a high-capacity heater in the mash water line so that any time during the mashing, we could add boiling water to the mash. And again, the whole focus here, the whole concept is, you have to, with high, high DP malt, to be able to get control, uh, you're going to have to control the amount of time that it spends in the enzyme active range. So, I would imagine these are tools that probably are used by some craft brewers that have encountered this. You can either use decoction um, and some brewers, if they contract brew in a in a brewery that was previously an adjunct brewer, they have a cereal cooker, so they can go ahead and make a faux decoction. They can they can start out some of them all in the cereal cooker and then add it to the main mash, or they can use boiling water additions. Uh, but that's what has to be done to try to control the profile. So, in answer to your question, why is it a problem? It's lack of control, and now. With some craft brewers wanting to increase or enter into more of the lager profiles, if you really study the the, the profile of the most classic loggers Bavarian Hellas and Czech Pills, they are not uh, above sixty two percent degree of attenuation. They are very low. They they build the body behind the um, behind the hops with a very nice uh, extract profile that comes out of a low attenuation. Um, and brewers that have been accustomed to making ales, which generally are higher attenuation, they, mis- they maybe have just been just fine with uh, with uh, brewing and uh, getting 68% attenuation. So this may need, this may become uh, an issue where, where people need lower attenuation profiles.
0: Okay, very good. Now we've uh, we've addressed, you know, how to, Work with um, having too much DP and um, too much total protein. Let's talk about fan because I think that in some ways is probably um, maybe even a, a bigger problem than the others in some in some ways.
1: It is most it is most problematic because one of the things you can do in the malt with with uh, DP is you can destroy it on the kiln. That's you can you can get and you can change the base malt you use, particularly go in the direction of English pale ale, where that's twenty units lower than lager in itself, and and you can destroy more DP and you can manage your base malt by getting uh, by getting more by getting more of a pale ale malt.
0: Which, as if we go back to you know one of your previous podcasts yeah. on developing flavor, which we've learned you know it has a yep. lot of positive outcomes too. So
1: absolutely so let's start with uh, the fan now so so free amino nitrogen it has a role in yeast production and and we should all understand that that's really its only role in in feeding yeast that's reproducing it's not really needed for nutrition during the rest of the normal fermentation it's really only involved when the um, when the yeast is reproducing and in fact um, um, I have we and there's many brewers now that use fan consumption to measure the amount of yeast growth. Uh, I work, of course, for larger brewers, and it's too hard to try to get a sample out of a six or eight thousand barrel fermenter at exactly the minute of peak that represents it to do a peak cell count. But what we've we determined is that the amount of fan consumed is directly related to the amount of um, yeast produced so for instance if you want to grow 100 million yeast cells depending on strain you're typically going to just go ahead and consume 100 parts per million of um fan so it's one part per million fan per million yeast cells now um so if you look at this calculation in an adjunct brewer you're going to first of all you have to always consider that that um that fan is run on. a congress wart which is only eight play-doh so you have to factor the number that comes in your malt fan you have to factor it by whatever your Play-Doh is, because that fan is on eight Play-Doh. You have to factor your adjunct ratio uh, because adjuncts don't provide any fan. And then factor a recovery rate because nothing in malt goes into beer at 100%. And my experience has been 70% is about right for fan. So if you're brewing an adjunct brew with 15 Play-Doh and 35% adjunct and a 70% recovery rate, you have an estimated 200 uh, 200, 205 part per million start of fermentation fan. So you consume then 100, 120 million to grow to the peak cell count, and you're around 100 or 80 at the end of fermentation. And that seems to be a, a number that's always worked for people. However, if you take that same malt and you brew a 14 Play Doh craft, beer or all malt beer with zero adjunct and a seventy percent recovery rate, all of a sudden you're near three hundred parts per million start. So if you have a yeast that consumes ninety or hundred million cells, you still have two hundred parts per million at the end of fermentation. Now, just again, I should have I should have covered how different these Before I get to that impact, I should have covered how different we are from from world two row. A typical Metcalf shipment is around 240 ppm. Now, Kunze specifies that, that the minimum amount of fan needed for brewing all malt is 130. Again, we're like at half the value. And the German shipment average of all the malts shipped around Germany for all malt brewing is 138. Parts per million. And the, um, the UK pale ale and lagers are about the same. They're in the 135, 145 range. And again, I want to reiterate that the fan is critical to yeast production, um, not to later nutrition. And I've, I've learned that roughly, of course, every process, every yeast strain is different, but about a million cells are grown for every part per million fan. So the, the fan residual then afterwards is a problem. Because the fan the fan residual, you, you've read papers, and, it, and, it, and it's really important to think about the remaining fan is available then for stecker degradation to active pungent aldehydes. And this has been covered in a number of papers from a number of monsters, the hazards of excess fan. Uh, and it's there. And that has to be concerned about. That has to be very concerning to people. The other thing is, just on a simple um, fan as a nutrient, it's providing, if you don't have an absolutely clean microprocess, it's providing nutrients for other bacteria that uh, are in the process. But it also, the one I want to focus on the most, though, is fans' involvement with VDK reduction. There's There's a good paper, IOB paper by Bamforth, that covers the enzymology of VDK reduction and what he has what he details in this paper is that that fan um, that or that ph for diacetyl reduction is optimized at 4.2 to 4.4 that's when you'll get the fastest bdk reduction well the problem excess fan increases beer ph at the end of fermentation this is a known phenomenon that the presence of fan increases the ph holds the ph up and it hinders diacetyl reduction. So um, Banforth will talk about 4.2 to 4.4 as an optimum number, and the reduction rate decreases as pH increases. He actually mentions um, in his paper that 3.5 pH would be the optimum VDK reduction pH, but that's not, that's not the way beer is made, and it might not be a palatable beer. The other thing he notes in this paper, and this may be problematic, again, for brewers if they move from ale to to lager and for some of their brands, ale yeasts are better uh, than lager yeasts at reducing VDK. They will reduce VDK at a higher pH than lager yeasts will. So in this particular case, a classic adjunct lagers are in that range, 4.2 to 4.4. In fact, I worked for a brewery that used some uh, very, very high adjunct ratios, and, and malt is an important uh, driver of pH. And we had on some of our real high adjunct beers, we had some um, beers that were as low as 3.9 pH on low malt ratios. So they were down there, and, and we didn't have any trouble with VDK. Uh, uh, reduction at all. So so this is a this is an issue um that um when you raise the malt ratio toward 100% your finished beer pHs are higher generally than um than adjunct beers and you have a hindrance to reducing vdk and if you've only been used to the vdk profile of ale yeasts if you change to a lager yeast you'll have more of a uh, profile uh, problem so the it's important but i want to also highlight something else that's really important high enough pH represents a food safety risk. Um, The the classic training in brewing is that that beers are inherently safe from pathogenic bacteria because they're below 4.5. And I just noted that most adjunct beers uh, are between uh, 4.2 and 4.4. Well, if you increase pH and you have increases over 4.6 um, which is possible in some of the beer processes that are done now you you run into a possible food safety risk because if you if you look at anything that you google about food safety about pathogens about the FDA and food safety it all hinges on 4.6 pH that that number should just keep flashing in big red on the screen, whenever you go ahead and google that. Um, and uh, that's where the FDA divides between acid foods and low acid foods and the different procedures that are necessary to keep things food safe on either side of four point six. Now, I think it's yet to be I think it's yet to be played out exactly how this is going to work out. but the Food Safety Modernization Act that's now, past and starting into implementation it has FDA has now authority in brewing without affecting anything that TTB does uh, and I realize there's exceptions out there that pubs are exempt and there's there's a procedure for very small companies to put in a uh, um, a statement of their processes but it kind of it's kind of yet to be played out what involvement are going to it's going to happen um, in terms of when they become aware, and it's something that become bears watching at, um, when they see beers that are over 4.6 pH, because the, settle, the science is settled on 4.6 in food safety. Uh, that's the pivot point for it. But I, for now, I would really worry, about, I would just keep that in the back of your mind. It, it bears watching. I'd be more concerned about diacetyl reduction being being slowed down and reduced as ph increases now normally it's a it's an effect in fermentation but if you for instance we know that dry hopping or cellar hopping of beer increases the ph dramatically in beer so if you've dealt with the vdk reduction at the end of your primary fermentation and you're in a good vdk profile before you go to lagering and addition of cellar hops then you'll be okay but if you depend on the maturation process in lagering or croisoning to reduce vdk and you go ahead and add dry hopping and you add and you raise the ph to 474849 you're not going to get vdk reduction if you leave it carry over and have it present When you go ahead and add the dry hops and increase the pH, because it's proven, it's proven science that higher pH hinders BDK reduction. And uh, I think that's I think that's in a point that that has to be made that um, that it's more than just the focus that you've heard on the Strecker degradation of fan and creating pungent aldehydes and and stability problems. There's some strong um, there's some strong relationships between fan and increased pH and VDK reduction that are worth paying attention to, and there's a relationship between pH and food safety risks that have to be paid attention to. Joe, you've covered a lot of ground today. This has been really informative.
0: How about some practical takeaways for brewers uh, as they try to navigate some of these issues?
1: Look, malt type and variety choices really aren't quality choices. They're profile and, and differences, and they're what the brewer is looking for for outcome. What you select is really what the brewer wants to accomplish with his product goals. All the malts out there, work for somebody and they fit somebody so the brewer has to educate himself on his own product and what he wants and how malt plays a role in it so there's several different pathways i in within if you want to stay within north america i think that um one of the one of the rational things is do nothing there's a lot of products have been built on the malt we have and processes have been adjusted and i think a lot of people will make the choice of doing nothing as i mentioned you can contract for lower protein uh, and we recognize that European standard versus North American standard, and the contract should focus on getting protein under 11. Uh, another interesting one is a variety of choices. You know, Metcalf was dominant for a long time with Copeland as a secondary variety. In the last two years, Copeland production has surpassed Metcalf production. And I think the reason for that is that, that Copeland has a lower uh, S over T profile. And even at equal protein, it will produce lower fan, maybe 50 units lower. It'll produce lower DP, maybe 30 units lower because it has a lower S over T ratio requirement. I think that's people are starting to catch on to that. So if you wanted to get the variety choice, you would start to of focus on picking the lowest available attenuation or s over I'm sorry s over T conversion ratio and then get lower protein and that's the lowest as you can go and then you should always kill you always should look at kiln for diastatic power reduction there's plenty of room to play with there um, if you want pathways, if the people want to be more aggressive and brewers want to go outside the United States, and there are 100,000 tons of, bar, of, of malt brought to the United States every year from Europe, you could malt European barley in the U.S. This has been done recently when, the, when, this, when the, it's not possible right now on the exchange rate. But when the exchange rates for dollars to euro were in the 105, 106 range, you could bring barley from Europe into the Midwest. At a low and landed in the malt house at a lower cost than railing it from Montana. It's not really possible now because uh, the exchange rate is back up to 122, 124. But you could also you could support the production of European barley in in the U.S. and you and you can see that because maltsters supporting brewers keep adding. European varieties on the amber approved list. In the last two years, Propino and Explorer and Genie have been added. And that's the best and fastest way today is to grow uh, to find which of the European varieties are best adapted. And, and there's several monsters working on that to support brewers who has asked for it. But I would point out, you still have to deal with agriculture on the total protein. And then, um, you know, the summary of, of what would be well, you know, you could develop, you could develop new varieties with a European profile, but we got some hurdles there. The timeline is fifteen years. We still would have to manage the ag, uh, agricultural community for total protein. Probably the plump that exists in Europe would require irrigated barley, and we'd have to grow less and less uh, dryland barley. Uh, could we tolerate higher beta glucans? They have a higher expectation for beta-glucan. Would we want to go back to would it require going back to five-day malting? And for sure, I don't know on those questions, but for sure we need more guidelines. Although the effort is is correct in direction at the AMBA all malt guidelines, we're still far away from the German two-row guidelines of nine to eleven protein, thirty-eight to forty S over T, 130 to 150 fan and 62 uh, degrees Lintner for the DP. Um, So, you know, this is the key takeaways here, you know, kind of when we're all done with this. For some, it's just an academic exercise that these exist and they manage within them. But the key takeaways is, in my judgment, the current North American two-row is inconsistent with all-malt brewing. And the development of traditional two-row types here would require a significant reconsideration of breeding guidelines as well as take a long time. And then I would say also the execution of traditional two-row types are still going to require a change in agricultural practice to reduce protein. And here we are after 350 years of a six-row dominance in this country. Next year, this year, we're going to be approaching 90% two-row. And that's what this evolution has brought to us.
0: That was Joe Hertrick here on the Master Brewers Podcast. We've got a lot of new listeners lately. If you're new here and you like learning from Joe as much as I do, check out episodes 15, 24, and 51. You're guaranteed to learn something that will help you make better beer. I'm really looking forward to the ASBC MBAA Brewing Summit coming up this August in San Diego. It only happens every four years and it's not like any other conference you've attended. The Brewing Summit is 100% the science and technology of brewing. No pep rallies or business lectures, and you'll be surrounded by some of the smartest men and women in our industry. If you can only attend one conference in 2018, this should be it. Register now at MBAA.com. When we came around there Since there's
1: one thing that I should've told you Or maybe two things that you should've known or, I, or maybe three things that I should've mentioned But I did My fist full of courage My heart full of rage Well, I can't get stuck, I can't be losing too much